Today's episode is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable makes it easy to create a completely custom editorial calendar that can evolve along with your team. And it plays nicely with Slack, too. Join the content teams of places like BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Group 9 Media, and Condé Nast Entertainment. Visit Airtable.com slash Recode to get $50 off and free credits. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm, which is part of the daily lives of billions of people around the world. They may not be the name you think of when you think of smartphones, but they invented all the stuff smartphones rely on to be so smart. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, but do not settle in and get used to my voice because we are bringing in a new guest host today. Ed Lee, Rico's managing editor. He talked to Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. Great book, great movie. He's got a new book out called Artemis. Take it away, Ed. Thanks, Peter. I'm here with Andy, the author of Artemis. Welcome, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. Cool. So you're on a whirlwind tour right now with your new book. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm going all over the place. All over the place. Uh, you're from California, though. Right. right. I, I live in Sunnyvale, which is just north of San Jose. Right. So you are smack dab in the heart of Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, and you started out, or you you were until fairly recently, you know, an engineer, software engineer. Yeah, I was a computer programmer for about 25 years there. And then I kind of bungled into success with The Martian, and uh, that was the last time I did any honest work. So The Martian, we should back up a second, that's your, your first published book. Yes. And it was turned into a, a hit movie starring Matt Damon. Yeah. I have read the book. I've seen the movie. Uh, congrats on the success. Thank you. My 12-year-old daughter is a huge fan of both, by the way. Excellent. I'm glad <laughs> I could expose your child to a bunch of profanity. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's, you didn't expose her to anything that we didn't already expose to her at home <laughs> ourselves, enough. my wife and I. Uh, <laughs> uh, 12-year-olds these days are pretty uh, up to speed. On pretty educated. Yeah. Exactly, thanks to the internet. <laughs> but, uh, of course, what was a big part of the success of The Martian and what would made it so well-reviewed is that it's not so much science fiction. I mean, it is a work of fiction, of course. It's narrative. But it's science real. In other words, you took sort of the premise of, well, if you were to travel to Mars and someone had to be stuck there, what, you know, how would that all work? Yeah, I did my best to be as scientifically accurate as possible uh, in The Martian and in Artemis. Okay. Let's, let's get to Artemis. It's your second sure. book. What's it about? Well, uh, it takes place in a city on the moon, uh, humanity's only city that's not on Earth. And uh, the main character is a woman who's a small-time criminal, and she gets in way over her head. It's kind of a caper. It is. It's for sure. It's a heist story, whatever, crime novel uh, set on the moon. But at the same time, you know, as you did with The Martian, I mean, you sort of delved really deeply into how would you live on the moon? How would habitats work? And what's it like to sort of run or to fight in like one-sixth, you know, grab Earth's gravity, right? Right, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I did the, you know, kind of the deep dive into the science, probably way further down the rabbit hole than I ever needed to go. Probably only about 1% of the stuff that I worked out for Artemis actually made it into the book. All the technical details of how it was produced, how, like how they built the city in the first place. Right. And, all that fun you, stuff. You, but you still have those notes somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Like you could publish that someday as sort of the background notes to like, you know, if you really wanted to go deep my, into my it. My Silmarillion kind of. <laughs> exactly. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Well, let's hope Artemis is popular enough to uh, to warrant that. How about that? <laughs> uh, you know, I, there's a good chance it will based on um, what I've seen so far. I want to actually back up a second. So you, as you pointed out, you're, you're a software engineer. What, what kind of companies do you work for? Well, um, uh, you know, I had a 25-year career. I, I, go, I go back as far as, uh, well, I, 
I was uh, one of the programmers on Warcraft 2. Wow, okay. When I worked for Blizzard. Yep. That's wow. a long time ago. I also worked for AOL. <laughs> AOL, and, which is now, I think it's called Oath, right? Part of Verizon. I don't know. AOL, yeah. Time Warner, GE, Steinhard, Wig Corporation, exactly. whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah, there are, I mean, but uh, I worked uh, for AOL. And then I, I spent about half of my career working uh, for startups in the mobile space. So apps for mobile phones, mobile devices, stuff So you're like that. pretty steeped in in Silicon Valley and Internet, Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. <laughs> I suppose. Mobile revolution. It's never been uh, – well, I mean, yes, I'm, I, I live in Silicon Valley. I, I grew up there. But um, also it's just like I'm not a technophile. I'm not like somebody who like, oh, I just got to have the latest thing, the latest thing. I'm, I mean, I liked my job. I liked writing software, but it was never really this thing. It's not like I liked talking about it at lunch too, you know. <laughs> so okay, so you you wrote software by day mm-hmm. and you wrote fiction by night. I, I I'm just making. I that put up, on a mask. There to you do go. That. Yeah, right. Yeah. But basically, you you as as a software engineer, you did spend your free time writing stories, writing uh-huh. short stories and made up stories, etc. Whatever. Yeah. It was. Yeah. No, it really helps when you have no life, and so uh, <laughs> you've got the time for those sorts of activities. Well, you know, clearly you you've had a lot of time. Then it, uh, it was really <laughs> successful. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> Well, so I did check out your, your personal website. Um, I love sort of the aesthetic. It feels like 1995, 1996. If that, yeah. It's a very ghetto website. I made it myself, I'll have you know. Nope. It's uh, just a white background with blue hyperlinks that are left justified. I love the blue hyperlinks. When I when I first started putting up web pages, that's, that was with the gray background, you know, and the sort of the, gray. The no, I can't be. Role. I can't be putting the effort into, gray. like, changing the background color. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't have time for that. Well, so, okay, so we should... What I found fascinating beyond just the, the success of The Martian is that you, as you pointed out, wrote stories on your own. You published them by yourself on your website for free. And that's how The Martian actually started is you just had serials. You wrote it as a sort of installments and you posted it up on your web page. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I was writing all sorts of stories. I had three different serials going and random short stories that I would post. I just kind of wrote whatever I wanted. And The Martian was just one of the serials. But it was the one that the the readers clearly liked the best, and so that helped encourage me to write it more than the others. And yeah, so, so I mean, you know, there's there's all kinds of ways to skin a cat in terms of the publishing industry. This is the way you did it. When you were writing, though, did you ever think like I should submit this? No, it never occurred to me. I I had earlier in life, uh, in my twenties, I had taken a three year sabbatical off of work to try to break into writing. I wrote a book. Uh, it wasn't The Martian. It didn't get published. I couldn't get an agent, couldn't get any traction. Kind of the standard tale of woe that every writer has. You, you hold on to your rejection <clears throat> slips, I'm sure, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, for, the, for the people that were kind enough to bother sending me a rejection, <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't break in, so I figured, eh, I guess I either don't have what it takes or I, I don't know, but um, went back into the software industry. And this wasn't a, you know, sad Charlie Brown music, hang your head situation. I like writing software, but uh, I decided that writing would just be my hobby. So by the time I was writing The Martian, it never occurred to me that it was publishable. And I really didn't think it would have any mainstream appeal. I thought I was writing for this tiny little niche audience of one percenter nerds like myself who wanted all the numbers correct and the mathematical proofs in the text. <laughs> well, the nerds are taking over the world, so clearly, fair you enough. Know, yes, you're you're writing for a bigger audience in that way. So the geeks shall inherit the, the earth. Exactly right. It, 
they they responded to the Martian your installments and said, hey, you should actually sell this as a Kindle book. Is that was that the idea? Uh, well, not quite. Um, basically, people, uh, as you commented, my website uh, leaves everything to be desired, and so I, I was getting uh, emails from people saying like, hey, I love the I love the Martian, but I hate your website. Can you make an e-reader version that I can download and put on my you know e-reader? So I did that. And then other people emailed and said, like, hey, I'm glad there's an e-reader version, but I don't know how to download a thing from the Internet and put it on my e-reader. Can you just post it to Amazon so I can just get it through their system? Right. And so I figured out how to do that. And that's how I ultimately kind of accidentally self-published. And that started, uh, you know, ba- basically um, you have to charge a dollar you know, minimum. Well, actually, 99 cents. Right. You have to charge that. So it's sales. And then, so it started working its way up the um, the the bestsellers in science fiction, and and that got the attention of Crown Publishing, and it got me an agent and a movie deal. And they, and they and, published your book, and and now you're a movie and and big time author. After right. That. I don't know why everyone doesn't just do this. Exactly. It's awesome. Come on. There you go. Hi- highly recommend it. <laughs> Actually, I'm curious about the mechanics of that. So you, it was a, it was a free serial, and even when you. I guess ultimately when you put it up on as a Kindle, it had to be 99 cents just because there need to be a That's transaction. The rules. Well, th- those are the rules at Amazon. Did you have to take it down off your personal website after that? Uh, not when I posted it to Kindle. Got it. But of course, once Crown came in and had the rights, then I had to yeah. uh, take it off my personal website and of course take it off of um, – take it down from Kindle. Right. And then they put it back up when as part of their release schedule. Was your were you ever? I mean, of course, that's like one of those sort of dream moments of yeah. you know, would be author. At the same time, be curious. Were you ever concerned about? Well, I kind of have this built in audience here, and I don't want to upset them. Was there? Oh ever- no! <laughs> oh hell no! No no no! Screw that these guys! Right? No no no! Yeah. Not screw those guys. Those are my core. Those are my core readers. Right. I mean, they they. In fact, a lot of those guys turned around and bought. Even though they'd already finished the story, they turned around and bought the one dollar version on Kindle just because. I would frequently get email from people saying like, hey, I want to donate. You know, uh, you right. should have a donate button. And I'm like, I don't need a donate button. I'm a, I'm a computer programmer. I make a good salary. I'm, I'm fine. And so this, they saw this as a, a lot of my readers saw this as an avenue by which they could donate. They're like, okay, I'll buy a copy of the book. And so, no, those core readers are uh, probably almost certainly a big part of the reason why it initially started to get up in, in the ratings in Amazon. And then kind of worked out from there. But no, it had been my dream my whole life to be a published author through a traditional publisher. And so, yeah. Well, and so, you know, Zero that got you hesitation. even, of course, and that got you even more distribution, of course, beyond just Amazon. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. So I think, you know, what you're describing in terms of your your core community, how they want to support you, that seems to be sort of uh, what's going on the internet in general lately in all kinds of ways. There's Patreon, there's right. Kickstarter, there's all kinds of ways to give money to artists or people who you think, you know, you should be supported in some way. Is that – to what degree do you see this as just the future of everything, the future uh, of whether it's publishing or, or anything that wants to get off the ground? Uh, I think it's I think it's good on the small scale, and it helps out people who are doing small scale things. But if you want to talk about something that's large, that's like scalable, you you can't. I mean, you couldn't have something like this for a large company that employs like fifty people or something like that. You can do it for someone who's like, hey, I make you know these I make these cool sculptures or whatever, and people will be like, oh, make more sculptures. You can do that, but. With very, very few exceptions, you can't – I don't think you can – I don't think you can have an economy where people derive their income solely through donations. You need like, you need the big infrastructure. Well, not only that, but 
ultimately, it has to be like, look, if I'm going to do this thing, I would need you to pay me, like, and I need that to be guaranteed. I can't just do the thing and hope you give me money. And Amazon got, can do that, and Crown Publishing feed. can do that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. No. And the traditional, the traditional publishing route. What you really get out of traditional publishing that people often overlook is the tremendous uh, publicity and marketing engine and placement of getting your book and all the bookstores and things like that. That's the thing. I don't know how to do that. I can't do that myself. Uh, I mean, yes, they also they create the physical copies of the book, and but distribution and and. But still, again, publicity and marketing, they're fantastic. Our crown is fantastic at that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start. So that's it, there's a, a stark difference between how you put The Martian together and how you put Artemis together. Mm-hmm. Artemis wasn't a free serial on your <clears throat> website. It wasn't eventually Kindle-bound. It was destined for print. Right. Uh, there is an Audible version as well, apparently. Yeah, uh, simultaneously releasing. Um, no, uh, everything came out November 14th. I'm not sure when this... Will be, Should be uh, soon after, aired. Yeah. but uh, yeah, uh, simultaneous release with uh, the lovely and talented Rosario Dawson. Uh, She's is voicing the, the vo- vo- uh, is the narrator of uh, the audiobook, and she did a fantastic job. So, what was like? So, you have all this new infrastructure behind you on your second book. Yeah, it's and awesome. There's an anticipation of like, okay, when's your next book, Andy? What's you know, doing it that way wholesale as opposed to in the sort of serial installments when you the Martian. What was the difference just in the – how did it feel different in terms of how you put it together? Well, there were a few major differences. Uh, one of them was well, – w- w- one thing that I really enjoyed about uh, working on The Martian was that I would get lots of feedback every chapter, right? So I'd post a chapter online and I'd get like hundreds of emails from readers saying like, yeah, hey, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, What happens and, next and what's going to happen yeah, with you? Exactly. Right. And that, that, really, that really helps motivate me. That, that, that's like – it's exciting to me. It's like, yes, I've got an audience. It's cool. Uh, for Artemis, I'm just like – you know, that was by myself. Um, I would give chapters to my editor and my agent to give me feedback on them and just to make sure I'm not going completely off the map. But it wasn't as exciting. It wasn't as much of a thrill ride to have people constantly telling me I'm awesome, giving me that glorious external validation that I crave, right? But um, one good thing about it was that, like, Artemis was a much more complicated story and it was more difficult for me to write. And so... I had to go back and make changes to things like, you know, seven chapters ago to keep things working correctly. I wouldn't have uh, it would have been very difficult to do that in a serial. And we'll take a break. Here's Peter with a word from our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Cameron Hughes Wine. You have heard me talk about Cameron Hughes Wine before because I enjoy drinking Cameron Hughes Wine. It's high-end wine at totally affordable prices. They ship everything directly to you. But wait, it gets better. They've got an insane deal for Cyber Week. It turns out this week is Cyber Week. The deal is perfect if you've got holiday parties coming up or if you just like to drink wine. I'm in both categories. You and everyone else at those parties or your house want to be drinking good wine, and you can get it way cheaper at chwine.com. Recode media listeners get 30% off and free shipping on a case and free gift bags. But you got to act fast to get the deal. It's only available till midnight on Friday, December 1st. If you are listening to this in real time, that is tomorrow. I've tried this wine, and I love it. It's good wine. It just does not have a fancy label. You get 30% off and free shipping. Go to chwine.com. Use my code PETER at checkout. These are amazing, award-winning luxury wines, and you can buy them whenever you want, but you've only got till tomorrow to get this special deal. That's chwine.com. Use my special promo code PETER, and you'll get 30% off plus free shipping. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Hey, this is Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. Our show is all about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And one of those things is class. Oh boy, class. Right now, we're collecting stories about when you felt your class the most. My friends wanted to go to these expensive restaurants, and it really did drive a wedge. Tell us your story. Email or send in a voice memo to class at deathsexmoney.org. You go through a lot of things in, in Artemis in terms of the science, right? Yeah, Not just sure. living in one six gravity and vacuum and that sort of thing, but metallurgy and chemistry. Welding. And welding, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, sort of that get in the way at some point, or did you, do you really feed off of having that kind of deep background in like how this thing actually works? Oh, I love doing the research. I just, I can't get enough of it. In fact, usually I have to go like, all right, that's enough. You've gone far enough down the old rabbit Let's hole. Let's get back it's to a, the story. Right? I have to, I have to get back to it. Well, and, and I only, I, I have to be really stingy with like what I tell the reader. I'm like, okay, the reader doesn't want to read a 20 page treatise on, on the FFC Cambridge process and how to do anorthite reduction into its base elements. They don't want that. Or maybe one or two people do, but most of them don't. So I have to just say like, okay, only tell them the scientific background on things that are plot relevant. And but sometimes that's, that's hard because, you know, it took me a long time to write this book. It should take you a long time to read it. <laughs> that's sometimes the feeling, you know. Um, I certainly noticed that in the parts of the book where you really started to dig deep into this stuff. I mean, is, it isn't just sort of a, a personal sort of thing. It's It actually drives the plot. It actually sort of creates the contours of what you can and cannot do in the storyline. Right. I mean, and I started by designing the whole – like I had designed the whole city and worked out all the science and technology for it before I made any characters or storyline. And one of the reasons I did that was because I didn't want to warp the reality such that the plot – such that it was convenient for the plot. I started by saying, this is the most realistic way to make a city on the moon. The plot and characters have to fit within that. So, I mean, I've read before that a lot of your sci-fi inspirations, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, I I grew up with these authors as well. I think think they're brilliant. The Foundation series is like one of my favorite of all time. Um, But these are very out there sci-fi. This is like, this is the kind of, very classic in the sense that let's skip past the mechanics of this for a second. Let's just, you can travel in space and and they might get into weird mechanics about that. But for the most part, it's sort of decided this is happening. The Martian, Artemis, I mean, I can certainly see hints of all these kinds of things as inspiration, but you sort of forge your own idea of what sci-fi is. I guess, yeah. I mean, I like like very scientifically accurate sci-fi. I want to not break the phys- I, I, I don't want to break the laws of physics. And a lot of those old, those juveniles, like the, you know, things by Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, didn't violate any of those rules. They're, they're like, you know, you have something like, a, was it the twin paradox, I think was one of right. Heinlein's. And they're traveling in a ship, but it, it, it can't go faster than light. They're traveling at relativistic speeds and experiencing time dilation. And, you know, they they do all that, although actually at the end they do figure out faster than light travel. They do faster than light travel, and time dilation is solved that way. Yeah. Yeah, I know but, that's always an issue with, with faster than light. <laughs> right. Well, well, and what was interesting is they had instant communication in that. That's what the, the mental, the twins, but that people studying that instant communication in the book is how they figured out how to do faster than light travel. So there's like this one little violation of physics, and then he 
Heinlein had them explore it just like real scientists would. They'd be like, "Well, wait a minute!" Right, <laughs> and then they saw, and then they solved. Yeah, and I, then they solved it exactly. I, yeah. No, I, I, I love that aspect of it as well. I guess what's interesting about Artemis in particular, the feeling that I got a lot about uh, from the book is, I mean, there is definitely sort of a, a cyberpunk kind of vibe to it. I don't know huh. how much that was intentional or not, but in terms of, I guess what I'm talking about is sort of you dwell a lot in the economics. You know, of yeah. what a society is like like that. But the economy of the future, how machines or like man-made situations, like how that drives progress, which is, you know, a lot of what cyberpunk deals with, hmm. I guess is what academics call postmodernism. I mean, was that – how conscious was that? Was that an influence in I any mean, way? I mean, certainly I'd, I would never have described Artemis as cyberpunk. Maybe we have different de- definitions. To me, cyberpunk means like implants. And like stuff like that, and there's none of that in Artemis. But no, that's that's it's very it's very kind of clean, I guess. You've got mm. gizmos, you've got you know yeah, people I mean, with their devices, like basically, right? But how much of that still drives the plot, and not well, just that, but sort of the economics of living in a situation like that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I honestly believe that uh, economics drives pretty much everything um, in the world, one way or another, and so. That was the first thing I had to do was work out what is the economic foundation of a city on the moon? Like, why would you do it at all? People, you don't get a city full of people moving somewhere without there being some economic reason. And in Artemis, the answer is tourism. The price of getting to low Earth orbit and uh, by extension to the moon uh, is low enough that middle class people can afford like a once in a lifetime vacation to the moon. And And so Artemis is a remote tourist destination. And I love that it's not necessarily so a big sort of first world nation that sort of sets it up. It's sort of this really interesting, intricate way of sort of getting into uh, a smaller country. I won't reveal necessarily oh, okay. you know, here, but uh, it's worth taking a look at. I love the caper plot. I thought it was really interesting. It's compelling. <laughs> it feels almost like it was tailor-made for a feature film. Was that part of the impetus for that? Uh, no, it wasn't intentional. Uh, I don't – you know, when I'm writing a book, I'm not going like – I'm not trying to write it as like a a spec for a movie. I'm just writing a book. Although a lot of my influences are from cinema and television. And so probably I tend to think along those lines in terms of plot structure and stuff. So there, there may be some of that subconsciously, but it, I, I mean, I'm just trying to write a book here. (laughs) You want a good story. Yeah. I want a good story. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want an elaborate movie pitch. Well, so the film rights have been picked up for this book, right? They have. Uh, yeah, Fox bought the film rights, and they've attached uh, Chris Lord, uh, sorry, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, the directing duo, to uh, direct. And uh, those two right now are kind of narrowing down the candidates for screenplay writer to do the adaptation. How were you involved in the, the Martian filming? Were you sort of um, hanging around set at all? Or? Uh, my only job on that was to cash the check. And uh, I did that really well. That's, no, yeah, no, that's not easy. I had no authority or say. I had no responsibilities for the Martian. I also – I didn't go to the set because they shot it in Budapest and Jordan and I'm afraid to fly. <laughs> I've heard that. Uh, yeah. No, and you're wondering how I got from my home in Sunnyvale yeah, to here in, in New York City. We're in downtown Manhattan here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Valium. Lots of it. There you go. That solves a lot. <laughs> solves a lot of issues. Yeah. Um, but for the record, prescribed by a doctor, not just like some guy on the street. <laughs> also, I mean, look, uh, writers on a movie set, there isn't much to do. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's just. It's yeah. Like priest on a honeymoon. It's just. Well, so given all that, though, how did you? This is your. This is your baby. This is your project. Yeah. They turn it into a film, and it you sort of goes out of your hands. I know this is not 
on commonplace these days, of course, with big books like this. How did you feel about it? How did you? How, what was the experience like? Oh it? well, uh, so I never had an with the Martian. I never had an opportunity. Are, are we talking about the Martian or Artemis? Let's on this start one? with the Martian first. Okay. Yeah. I never had an opportunity to feel nervous because although I didn't have any say in anything, Drew Goddard, who wrote the screenplay, chose to involve me. And so he was on the phone with me very frequently asking usually technical questions. And he'd send me revisions of the script to get my feedback and, you know, just to see what I thought. And I saw that he'd done such an excellent job on the screenplay. I, I never got to the point where I had to be worried about anything. And then the the execution was like flawless. I mean, Ridley Scott, Matt Damon. I mean, it was Unbelievably good, it's a very well done film. Yeah. In uh, in Artemis, I uh, you know it's like I, I'm not sure to what extent the eventual screenplay writer will choose to include me, uh, whoever they are. I'd be happy to to be a resource for them. But other than that, I'd just say like, hey, I'd love to see the the revisions as they go by. <laughs> so what one thing that's particularly interesting about that uh, Artemis is that the female protagonist, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so for, first of all, it's, it's, it's a female protagonist as opposed to a male protagonist, which is a lot of sci-fi is driven by male characters a lot of times. But also, I mean, you she this character hails from Saudi Arabia. She's not uh, yeah. a white guy from Minnesota or so something. So how did I end up doing this? Yeah, how, yeah. Did, that, how did you well, come I, to that? I didn't sit down and go like, I'm going to be inclusive. That's not how that worked out. What happened was my original plot – remember I said I designed the whole city before I came up with plots or character ideas. So the first plot that I outlined uh, was completely different than what the book is now. And it had different main characters, different everything. And I had a need of a kind of a likable smuggler character for like two or three scenes, like this very, very tertiary character. And so that's when I created Jazz. I'm like, okay, I'm – Jazz is the main character. Ja- right? I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, Jazz. Jasmine Bashara is the main character. And I said, like, well, Artemis is, like, a very international city. It's one of those things. It's like – it's almost like the Old West. It's like if you can afford to get here, you can live here. There's no, like, immigration rules or anything. And so I said, like, well, what's a country I haven't used yet? Uh, Saudi Arabia. And I'll make her a woman. Just why not? And so that that was really kind of the invention of jazz. And I'm like, all right. And she's this likable, probably smart ass, you know, and that's it. Well, anyway, um, unrelated to her, that story didn't really work. Like I, the, the story that I'd come up with for it, I'm like, eh, this is not working. I don't like it. So I ditched that and I came up with a second, a different story idea to take place in, in the city. And in that story, Jazz was more prominent, but still definitely a secondary character. That's interesting. Uh, That story also didn't really seem to work for me, but it was getting better. But I thought, like, huh, Jazz is actually pretty interesting. So what if I wrote a a crime story? What if I revolved it around this smuggler, you know, character who's kind of funny and stuff like that? I, I think I could sink my teeth into that. So that's where I came up with the what Artemis is, the, the, the version that you have before The crime caper, right. The crime caper. And by that time, Jazz was so cemented in my mind as a Saudi woman that my imagination would have just rebelled if I'd tried to make her something I'm more familiar with. So I'm like, well, okay. I'm well, going okay, so to get right down in there, too. It's a first-person narrative. You're right there in her brain with her. And that's, uh, yeah. So <laughs> you're, you're a white guy from California, mm-hmm. and the protagonist is a, a, a woman from Saudi Arabia. How did you make this leap? Well, the cultural thing is easy. Like, her culture is Artemis. She's uh, displaced. Although, right. It's somewhere it, else. It's yeah. You can go. You're, you're made anew there. That's yeah. sort of a, a lot of the premise of living on the moon. Well, yeah. And also, she's lived on the moon since she was six years old. So she's culturally uh, Saudi uh, culture is not a big part of her life. Her father is... Uh, 
is much more old country because he was an adult when he moved there. But she's much more, you know, just the culture of Artemis itself. And so that that was easy because I could make up that culture and ascribe those morals and beliefs to her. And so that's no problem. The biggest challenge, though, is, oh, and also in this future, I just there's like uh, at least within Artemis, there is like no like sexism or racism for her to deal with. It's more a function of do you have money or do you not have money? Right. right. And I presume humans are humans. So there's presumably sexism and racism within the city, even in that era. But it's not an issue during this story. So the biggest challenge, the biggest deviance from my own brain is that this is a woman. And however equal men and women are intellectually, we still look at things differently. And uh, so I, I had to I, – I gave it my best shot. And uh, I gave the manuscript to every woman in my kind of circle of trust who I could trust not to just throw it up on the pirate bay, right? So my, my editor is a man, but his boss is a woman and his assistant is a woman. And the copy editor was a woman. And when she was copy editing, I was saying, like, please also give me feedback on the believability of the female alliance. Gave a copy to my mom. Gave a copy to my girlfriend. Like people that I could trust to give me feedback on – on, and point out the parts where it's like, eh, this is a really sort of how a guy would do things, not how a woman would do things. Oh, so they actually had some influence over how Oh, for how sure. And out. I made yeah. changes based on it. Yeah. Hold that thought. We're going to take another break. And here's Peter. Thanks, Ed. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology and everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you want it to work without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now, the company that changed everything with a smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone, no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. Qualcomm, with two M's, dot com slash we invent. Recode Media is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, who has a question for you. What if hiring could be easier? What if it was more streamlined, less time-consuming? So even if you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you could post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work. They notify qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you get the best possible matches. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That sounds scary, but it's good. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire! Exclamation point. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Zero dollars. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That way, they will know that I sent you to ZipRecruiter. One more time, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Back to you, Ed. Thanks, Peter. And we're back. The success of The Martian, the success of both the film and the book, you know, landed you other things. You were also producer of a TV series on, for CBS about uh, next generation NASA astronauts. What was it called? That was called Mission Control. Uh, we shot a pilot for it. And uh, unfortunately, CBS uh, decided not to pick, pick it up pick for it up. series. The story, I like the idea behind it, but that's TV is like that, right? That's, There's that's all kinds TV. Of, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, great that you even got a pilot going. Yeah, in the first and it was place. a really cool experience too to be there for a production. But you were the writer on that. Is I that was right? one of the writers. One I mean, writers. well, I was I was an executive producer, series creator, and one of the writers in the writers' room. So I wrote a pilot, and then we got a bunch of writers together to basically rewrite the pilot to make it more what the network wanted, and so on. 
it's a big complicated process. But I was there for the shooting. I mean, I was there for, you know, the production itself. Writers uh, for TV tend to have more power than they do on film. The writers seem the to drive a lot of do. exactly yeah. right. Yeah, I was not the showrunner. You're not the clear. showrunner, but it's sort of that's sort of like the track for a lot of these guys, right? Uh, yeah, start out um, as writers or a, part of a writing room. Kind of, yeah. In a in a movie, the director is the dictator. In a TV show, the showrunner, the showrunner. is the dictator. So, is that something you feel like you want to do more of in the future? Have like the, the experience of writing uh, for a TV serial. I would. I would like to do that because I like the infinite canvas of television. And when I say TV, I'm including streaming services, Netflix, that, that sort of thing, just video entertainment. And it's awesome because in a movie, if you're writing a movie, you've got 90 to 120 minutes to establish characters, establish a plot, have the conflict, have a resolution, and then an epilogue, and you're done. But if it's a TV show, even if it's like a 10-episode Netflix show, you've got 10 hours to tell your story. You can be really expansive. Right? Yeah, and you can you can go off in directions. You can follow up on secondary characters. You can, you can get justice for Barb and uh, so on. <laughs> um, I mean, so there was a little bit of controversy around the casting of that show in particular. I mean, correct me oh, if I'm wrong, Mission but I think Control. you had – yes, for Mission Control. I think mm-hmm. you had written the ca- main characters were fairly diverse, but in the actual casting didn't yeah. turn out that way. Talk about that. What was that situation? Uh, well, like? the casting um, – basically, it was a really rough pilot season. There were, I think, something like w- – without exaggeration, I think there were like 400 pilots made by various entities right. across – in the in, just in the U.S. And – you think people have this vision of Hollywood of like, okay, the struggling actor and, and, and like the big production and stuff like that. The model has changed. The, all the rules have gone out the window now that there are so many sources that, that create content. So you've got – it's no longer just the networks. Now you've got like Netflix, Showtime, HBO, Hulu. You know, you've got Amazon. I mean everybody is making original productions. So there's a whole lot more – demand for the performers than there ever was in the past. So now it's 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 no longer the it's no longer a buyer's market. It's a seller's market. The performers are more it's harder to get good performers than it is if you if you're a good if you're a named if you've got a name if you're if you're if you're a known uh, actor or actress you you will have you are probably, in so much demand now. You're in right. so much demand now, and so we tried to get people who were the right ethnicities for those roles, and they were just taken. Like they had already signed on to other things, and also uh, a lot of uh, performers are just now um, also again because it's uh, sort of a seller's market now. They they can do things like they'll say like, well, I'm interested in the show, but I'm not willing to do a 22 episode season. So I'm only willing to. I can't commit for that. Right? I'm not willing. Well, and it's in their best interest because a 22 episode season is like that's what you do all year. But if they say like, but if you're willing to do like a 10 or 12 episode season, like the like the streamers do, then that frees up half of my time to go pursue movie gigs, and so that works for them. And but we had like CBS is like this has to be a 22 episode season, and so we lost a lot of interest there. So. It was a very difficult and painful casting process, and we did get good performers, but we did not uh, we did not get the ethnicities that that we were shooting. But for. you guys tried at first. We though, tried. So the, the, <laughs> I think there were two two main leads with African American uh, male lead. Is that was that the original idea? As you oh, written the original it, idea was yeah, African American um, male lead. Uh, the character of Stevenson, who's an, uh, was the commander of the space right. station, was originally slated to be African American, and the flight director, who's the person in charge of mission control, was 
originally going to be a, a Latino American woman. And so I, I love it. White guy from California loves to to get into these. Uh, well, I'm not trying to. I, be, I know it's I can not see a, that you're not purposely yeah. trying. I think it just sort of seems like it's some natural thing that you're coming up with. I don't know. I guess I just. Uh, I, I don't. It's weird. When I'm coming up with characters, they just kind of form in my head. And they are what they are. And then I can't change it. Like, my imagination really doesn't want me to change it. So, actually, so let's jump back a second to Artemis and, mm-hmm. and potential filming of it. It's a really cool protagonist main character. Are you concerned about how that might be cast? Uh, actually, no. It is very clear that the that the studio is not messing around on this one. They, they want they, to hew as closely as they can they to what you Absolutely, yeah. They're, okay. they're, in fact, even to the point of they're saying, like, well, you know— w- they they may end up having to well what they call a discovery. In other words, you'll have to get like a lead that isn't as well known, and then get the star power in the other in the in this in the other characters if necessary. But there's been so much backlash now in Hollywood for you know whitewashing characters that I, I think they're they're taking it very seriously. Or at least at least in in the case of Artemis, what I'm hearing, bear in mind, I'm a complete outsider to this process. Right. But what I'm hearing is they are very seriously they're not messing around. They they really, really want to get someone of the who's at least the right kind of complexion to play an uh, a Saudi lead. Doesn't have to be someone from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but there's actually a large pool of talent that are about the right complexion. So you've got like, you know, uh, people who are um, Arabs or Persians, and then you've also got Bollywood, right? And that's a big pool of performers. And then you've got South Americans also. Like, There's potentially a lot you can... There's there's a large pool of of potential performers. The trickier part is actually finding uh, an actor who's like, an actress who's young enough to like pass for jazz but at the same time, like, has the gravitas and name recognition to draw people into the theaters. There's a whole bunch of business decisions involved, of course. That seems to be how a lot of, uh, you know, of course, how films get greenlit is you, you have to get a big star to attach. And then that's the money part comes of it. in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's always a tough. There's but there's lots of characters in Artemis. So maybe we could get big stars in, in the other in roles. In these other roles, right. No, that's a good point. Okay, so towards the end of this, I want to get now to the tough questions. Mm-hmm. When will humans live on the moon? Well, um, I went ahead and made my prediction on the uh, in the 2060s for the beginning of construction of Artemis. Artemis takes place in the 2080s. So I gave us about 50 years to get to the point where we've driven commercial space travel, the prices down far enough that there could be a legitimate tourist industry. That so could, you've actually – it's out there in the book. That this is your prediction for it, how I'm, and if it could happen. Yeah. It's my prediction if, of what could happen. And I, I actually wrote a, a, a paper about the economics of, of the uh, commercial space industry, where it could go if they were – end up being as efficient as the commercial airline industry. And um, that's on Business Insider. So they, 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 I, I think you, I think it's on we'll businessinsider.com. Well, so uh, I mean, there are a lot of private enterprises now working on this idea. There's Elon Musk, of with SpaceX, yeah, and SpaceX. Jeff Bezos has Blue Origin. Mm-hmm. Isn't going to be from guard, one of these guys. And some old guard companies like Boeing are also not messing around on this. They're they're working hard on it as well. Yeah, uh, I, the, I think the best thing that can happen for commercial space travel is competition. And so, uh, my personal opinion is that I, I think NASA and, well, it would be nice if all the space agencies did it, but 
I would like NASA to get completely out of the business of making boosters at all. I want them to. I would like them to concentrate on space stations, spacecraft, manned missions, unmanned missions, whatever. Um, but not the getting into orbit part. Just the stuff that happens after it's in orbit. Because getting into the orbit part is solved. That we know well, how that works. Well, it can be outsourced right. to companies uh, based on bids, and then those companies would compete to have lower and lower prices. And that's where you get the beginning of these of the technological development that eventually gets us to a, a commercial spaceflight uh, industry that has appeal to the middle class. And that's what's going to drive it. If yeah. it's something that's ultimately affordable for the middle class, then yeah. you'd actually have an industry coming out of that. Yeah. If you could, if you could go into space, if you could, if you could spend a few days in a space hotel for like 10,000 bucks in modern day money, a lot of people would do that. But that's like out of the question right now. That's like a honeymoon vacation or something. Or a, well, I mean, it's out of the question right now to to go into space for that much money. It costs tens of millions. Right. But if they drove it down to where middle class people could afford it, then I believe you'd have that industry. And to like as an example, I'll say like one of the greatest things, in my opinion, that has ever happened to the aeronautical industry is the vitriolic competition between Boeing and Airbus. So Boeing and Airbus are two uh, airline manufacturers. They're in different countries. So that means they can't screw with each other by just having lobbyists and trying to make policy that favors one or the other. They have to actually compete. And, I mean, if you look at the advances in aircraft technology over the last 50 years, it's phenomenal. Because of this competition, whereas before there wasn't as Right. Much. Now look at the advances in spacecraft technology in the last 50 years. So – you're from Silicon Valley. You grew up in Silicon Valley. You live there. You live there now. You've seen firsthand the power of someone like Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. Elon Musk. You know what Apple has wrought. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. Are we? And a big part of Artemis is, as we talked about earlier, the economics of what it means to live on the moon and how that's motivated, how mm -hmm. it's driven. In the future, are we just going to be working for these guys in Silicon Valley? Is that are they basically <laughs> just going to be taking over the world? I mean, you've been beneficiary of part of part of that sort of infrastructure, or this emerging infrastructure, and space I don't know. travel I mean, could come from Elon and or Jeff. So, where huh? what's the future of that? Well, I don't I I don't buy into the idea that it would be a a monopolistic ownership of space travel. Now, in this story, there is in Artemis, there is a, a single company owns Artemis itself. And they rent out space in it. But the companies that operate within Artemis are their own things. So, you know, we're in a big building here in Manhattan. Some, some entity owns that. But all of the individual companies in here are their own entities renting space in the building, right? It's the same, it's the same concept. In other words, if, the, if that's going to work, there will have to be competition. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you don't have competition, then you, then you, you just don't have advancement or development. Um, so before we wrap up, what's what's next? What are you working on right now? Well, right this moment, I'm poking at ideas for uh, – I've written a little bit on it uh, for a sequel to Artemis. Already? Wow. Uh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I and it's actually like a different main character than Jazz. So it's it takes place in the same setting, but it's not a direct sequel. And I would love to do that. I would love to write lots of stories that take place there. But I'm not going to dive too deep into it until I see how well Artemis is received. Is that something that 
it it seems to make sense for I don't know. We talked earlier about uh, TV as a sort of an expansive medium. Could that be something that lands at like a Netflix or an Amazon Studios or something? Well, I mean, Fox owns the film rights. That's right. So, I mean, it would have to be it would have Fox. to be Fox. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If they wanted to. And actually, the way things work, um, the movie side of a company and the TV side are usually very, very different entities. So it belongs to Fox Features. So it's very unlikely it would end up being a TV show. All right. So maybe another movie. Maybe another movie. Yes. Okay. Maybe maybe a sequel of that. Yeah. Andy? Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Great. It was great talking to you. And thank you all for listening. If you like the show, then tell someone about it. Post about it on Facebook, email it to your friends, tweet it. And if you want to see interviews like this one, then you should come to the Code Media Conference. It's February 12th and 13th in Southern California, and there are going to be a ton of great guests there. Thank you to our sponsors. And thank you to Cadence 13, the company that sells those ads so you can listen to Recode Media for free. And thanks, Peter, for letting me steal his podcast for a week. Thanks to our producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and our editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. Peter Kafka will be back next week. See you later. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hpe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes.